Did you know the Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Welcome to the Financial Times Big Read, a weekly podcast featuring the best of our long-form reporting from around the world. I'm Anna Dedder from the Opinion and Analysis Desk. Last week, Martin Wolf launched the FT series on China's debt threat with his analysis of the country's huge surge in investment since the global financial crisis. This series includes reports on the risks facing the country's regional lenders, the challenge of stabilising the renminbi, how private companies are leveraging up, and the complex financing of the Belt and Road Initiative. Now Tom O'Sullivan, from the analysis desk, asks two of our China specialists how bad the country's debt problem is. In the aftermath of the global financial crisis, China's manufacturing and export-dependent economy crumpled, and the ruling Communist Party responded by unleashing an enormous wave of easy loans via the state-backed banking system. The aim was simple, sustain annual growth and contain political unrest that could be triggered by mass redundancies. But over the longer term, China's raised investment rate has delivered the disturbing combination of more debt and slower growth. How China's enormous domestic debts are managed will be of great importance, not just for Beijing, but for the many economies whose exports depend on it. I'm Tom O'Sullivan, the FT's Deputy Analysis Editor in London, and to discuss this I'm joined by Gabriel Wildow, the FT's Shanghai Bureau Chief, and James King, its Global China Editor. Welcome both. Gabriel, can I start with you? Does it feel like you're living in a country that is burdened with enormous debt? Are there any outward signs of it? I don't think the average visitor to China or the average Chinese citizen experiences everyday life here as something that's characterized by debt and financial risk. But what everyone notices about China is that the pace of change and indeed the construction of physical objects is extraordinarily fast. So we're talking about infrastructure, we're talking about roads and bridges, subway systems, high-speed rail, and we're also talking about housing, enormous apartment blocks. And for the most part, all of this construction is financed by debt. So in that sense, yes, it does feel that the pace of growth, the pace of change, and the pace at which the built environment changes is very noticeable. And debt is what underlies all of that construction. It is what finances it. As you say, for every day, whether it's tourists, whether it's people living in China, you wouldn't necessarily notice the debt signs going up. But the underlying concerns that you have raised in one of your pieces in this series, and which others have too, do you think there's anxiety in the country about the level of debt there? Because as we've said, it is truly enormous figures. Yeah, there are manifestations of anxiety that is explicitly related to financial risk and to debt. So, for example, as you walk along the street, you'll see outside of banks, those banner-style digital signs, and they'll say things like, steer clear of illegal fundraising schemes, beware of high-interest loans and high-interest investment products, and high returns mean high risk. And these are warnings meant to discourage excessive risk-taking by 
retail investors who for many years have assumed that the government implicitly guarantees all forms of debt in the economy and therefore simply flock to whichever kinds of investments seem to offer the highest returns. And we see, you know, there'll be people handing out leaflets sometimes on the street, advertising various kinds of high interest investment products. Increasingly now that activity is migrated online. So we have peer to peer lending. We have wealth management platforms that are all trying to serve that enormous demand for high yielding investments and to absorb some of China's enormous pool of savings. Just going to bring James in on that as well, because he's spent the best part of 25 years covering China. I mean, when you go back now, how much more do you notice? I mean, as we said before, the debt isn't an obvious thing written large on billboards, but it's a kind of growing concern. And is it something that in the last few years you've been going that more and more people have experienced concern about? I think in terms of everyday experience, everything really changed in 2009 Previous to that, I'd say, you know, in the 20 years leading up to that, the way that money was managed in China was very careful. There was a state-dominated banking system. The savings of the people went into those banks and then was recycled mostly to state-owned enterprises. And the story was always that private companies would find it difficult to get loans. And then in the aftermath of the 2008 financial crisis, China was really in a bind. It really needed to pump up growth to replace its export markets. And so there was an enormous tidal wave of money that it sprang onto the economy. And what happened was, in terms of everyday experience, that a lot of this money trickled into semi-formal or even into illegal uses. And the shadow finance market began to really proliferate so that you would get little shops on the side of pavements across the country where you'd have extremely high interest rates being offered for investors. So if you give them a call, they would say, I can guarantee you a 15% return if you want to put your savings with me. And then you'd say, well, how on earth can you do that? The answer would always be something like, well, there's a building in this town and they desperately need the money to top out the building in order to attract clients. And we're going to invest in the building. We get a very high return and we'll pass that on to you. So that was a real step change. It felt as if almost overnight, the regulatory authorities of China had lost control of a really big chunk of liquidity that was swilling around the economy and inflating this shadow finance sector. The regulators have taken steps in recent months, haven't they, to try and pull back a bit more of that control. But what is the primary fear around this debt? I mean, at the moment, if it's not managed properly, then it could lead to a crisis. And if so, what sort of crisis might that be? And what might it look like for the rest of the world? Gabriel? Well, the most likely scenario for a crisis that I have heard is something that would start on the fringes of the financial system in the shadow banking system. So there has been this proliferation, as James said, of these high-yielding investment products, many of which are distributed by banks but are not technically the responsibility or the liability of banks. And the scenario that you hear is one in which a default on one or perhaps a small cluster of these products sparks a contagion effect where investors lose confidence in the whole universe of these products. So 
when news of one default spreads, investors in products that have not yet defaulted will rush to their banks or non-bank financial institutions and demand cash right away. Essentially, you'd have a kind of bank run on the non-bank financial system that would spread through smaller banks and perhaps even eventually to the larger banks. But I would rate that as rather unlikely at this stage. The experts I speak to consider that a tail risk simply because of the enormous control that the government continues to maintain over all types of financial institutions. And they've shown quite a strong ability to manage crises, to kind of extinguish small fires before they can really spread and blaze out of control. And there have been incidents over the last five years, default incidents that might have sparked that kind of crisis, but in reality didn't do so. So people are still on the lookout, but I think there's a greater recognition today of the government's ability to manage this problem than perhaps there was a few years ago. You wrote earlier this week, one part of the series, where we were looking at regional lenders, now part of the world's largest banking system by assets. They're making riskier bets and having to rely on less secure funding sources. We described them as China's most dangerous banks. You mentioned there that the government has stepped in and there have been bailouts of a number of these lenders. But what makes them so scary? What makes them such a vulnerable part of the system? If we step back for a second and look at the history of China's banking system over the last 20 years, in the late 90s, the big four banks really dominated the system. And beginning in the late 90s, as China was starting to come out of a very tumultuous period where a lot of the traditional borrowers from these banks, the state-owned enterprises, were essentially bankrupt and couldn't repay their loans, those banks were saddled with enormous bad loan problems and had to be bailed out. Today, those big banks are actually models of prudence and are very well managed, is what analysts tell me. Instead, the problems that once appeared in those big banks have now migrated to the small regional banks that I wrote about in my piece. And the reason is that the big banks have their pick of the very best borrowers. And they also have access to a huge pool of very secure and very low-cost deposit funding. But the small banks, on their liability side, they don't have the same access to cheap and stable funding, so they rely on short-term volatile wholesale funding. And on the asset side, they do not have their pick of the safest, most reliable state-owned borrowers. So they are moving up the risk curve, out the risk curve, to lending to small businesses and to local state-owned enterprises whose position is much more precarious. And that's the fundamental source of the risk with these banks. And in terms of those local state-owned organizations, presumably the regional banks are under a certain political pressure to lend to them as well. That's right. So these banks are restricted from operating to a significant degree outside their home area. So they're, if you like, hostage to the local government that directly controls infrastructure projects in the area and directly controls state-owned enterprises, but also has enormous influence over the putatively uh, private economy. So as a small regional bank, you have no choice but to cooperate with the local government. And that means doing some local service to lend to companies that you don't really have very much confidence in, but the government can lean on you, and there's really no choice but to go along. As we said earlier, James, this isn't just an issue for Beijing and regional banks and the domestic economy in China. Anyone who trades with China stands to lose, but President Xi Jinping's Belt and Road Initiative is particularly important in this discussion because it seems that a lot of the money that is being lent to both countries and companies to build the Belt and Road Initiative across Central Asia and other parts of the world is heavily dependent upon debt, forcing some countries who are already struggling into even higher indebtedness. 
Yes, that's the case. But just to take one step back, the Belt and Road Initiative at the moment comprises 78 countries around the world. So it's absolutely huge. One of the characteristics of it is that on average, the credit rating of these 78 countries is very low. Moody's has calculated that the median credit rating is BA2, which to junk the jargon is a non-investment grade. So on a median level, these countries are not considered investable, the credit rating agency. So what's happened is that the projects that China is funding, mainly through its policy banks, its development banks, the two big ones are called the China Development Bank and the Exim Export-Import Bank of China. The projects are very large indeed. And what can happen is that these rather financially weak countries end up taking on huge projects and then they struggle to repay the debt. At the moment, the key example is Pakistan, which is one of the most important countries in the Belt and Road Initiative. It's signed up to a total of 62 billion US dollars in investments in China-funded infrastructure projects. And Pakistan, partly because it's had to repay China and partly because it's had to import a lot of capital goods to make this infrastructure, is now down to its last 10 billion US dollars in foreign exchange reserves. And next year, it's got to pay 12.7 billion in foreign debts. So it is turning both to China for loans to repay its existing liabilities and also lately possibly to the IMF, the International Monetary Fund. So Pakistan is out there as an example of a country that's perhaps bitten off more than it can chew in the Belt and Road Initiative. But there are others too where debt stress is beginning to show. And those include Cambodia, Sri Lanka, Montenegro and Myanmar. So there is this sense that in a few cases, the Belt and Road Initiative, which is a relatively young project, is beginning to sow the seeds of some debt stress in countries that can really not afford this type of borrowing. So is it fair to suggest that Beijing is essentially exporting indebtedness, pulling these countries into its orbit? And to do that, they need to be building infrastructure that perhaps they can't actually afford. The Chinese would strongly deny that China is exporting its indebtedness. They would argue that they are bringing essential infrastructure to countries that desperately need it, and thereby they're laying the foundations for future growth. In fact, they would be put on a path to follow China's own development model, because as everybody knows, in large part, the value that China's created over the last 40 years has been created by building infrastructure and all kinds of other things that China needs. Needed. But in the case of some of the examples that I've mentioned, where countries are financially weak, it does tend to add stress that they cannot withstand. How does this all play out? Martin Wolf wrote last week in the series opener that Xi Jinping, incredibly authoritative figure now in China, needs to rein in the lending boom. Do either of you think that he can or will rein in the lending boom? I think we're at a very crucial period right at this moment 
in terms of the answer to that question, because in fact, over the last 18 months, we've already seen a very aggressive deleveraging campaign. In fact, more aggressive than I think a lot of people uh, believed when the government's rhetoric started to shift in that direction. The statistics show quite clearly that credit growth has slowed quite substantially. But for most of the last 18 months, the slowing credit has coexisted with very strong economic growth. And so Xi Jinping has been able to enjoy the best of both worlds. But now we've seen, uh, just in the last few weeks, very clear signs of growth slowing. And we've also seen signs of policy easing, both monetary and fiscal. So the question now is, how aggressive is that easing going to be? Will the government be willing to stay the course on cutting debt, even as it starts to inflict real pain on the economy? Or will they go back to their old playbook, a very heavy-handed stimulus? And analysts right now are divided in terms of their forecasts. The signs of policy easing are very clear, but the government has also tried to um, guide expectations and has said very clearly that we're not going back to big-time stimulus. We're going to do, they're calling it fine-tuning, this latest easing. But if the growth continues to slow, the temptation to do that and the pressure to do that, and Xi Jinping, with voices in his ears, complaining about the pain of slow growth, will become very difficult to resist. As we said right at the top of this podcast, one of the reasons that China did this back in 2008-2009 was because of concerns that the economy slowing and over its export market and also about internal concerns about the idea that it had to continue growing at sort of around 8% a year to keep everything ticking along. Have those concerns eased at all? How difficult a decision do you think this is for Xi Jinping? I mean, you say analysts are divided, but is he in a particularly strong position to do this? Should he want to? I think he is in a strong position if he feels motivated to do so. If we look at China's demographics, we see that the pressure on job creation is lower than it was even five, let alone 10 years ago. So back when people were talking about preserving 8% growth, there was a feeling that China needed that level of growth in order to create enough new jobs each year to absorb new entrants into the labor force. But China's aging society, the labor force is shrinking, and so the pressure on job creation is lower. Uh, nevertheless, as I said, there are powerful interest groups from the old industrial economy, from the manufacturing construction sectors that will be communicating with Xi Jinping or, or transmitting their message that they want credit stimulus, that they want to keep growth humming because it helps their bottom lines. And I think there's a real question about how much appetite Xi Jinping has. He has centralized his authority. He has the power to push through difficult initiatives that may be painful. But I also think there's still a question about whether he really has the appetite to inflict pain on some of these powerful interest groups that will be pressing him to loosen up. And so the next few months really will be very crucial to see whether there is a very strong rebound in credit growth in response to those pressures. James, you heard what Gabriel said there about analysts being divided about you know the varying competing interests in Beijing. What's your take? What do you think Xi Jinping will do? As Gabriel's already said, I think the great dilemma for Xi Jinping and the other policymakers at the moment is always between the short-term and the long-term goals. So the long-term goal is to bring down the debt levels within the Chinese economy. In other words, to deleverage from what the International Institute of Finance is currently saying is a 299% debt-to-GDP ratio to something much more sustainable. So that's the long-term goal. 
my sense was that Xi Jinping always wanted to achieve this over a period of time. But of course, events get in the way. And the event that we're talking about at the moment is the US trade war, what kind of effect that will have as trade friction between the US and China escalates. Donald Trump is currently proposing increasing his tariff sanctions on China up to 500 billion US dollars in Chinese goods. So we could get into a much worse situation than the one that we're in today. Therefore, the short-term imperatives seem to take center stage at the moment. And I think Xi Jinping and the other policymakers are having to take that into account and loosen the purse strings just a little. But overall, I would say China has got a fair chance of being able to manoeuvre itself off this debt mountain that it's currently on. And that is because, notwithstanding the fact that the shadow finance sector has grown up strongly since 2009, China still controls most of the liquidity taps in China. In other words, most of the banks are still state-owned. The bond market is state-regulated. The stock market is state-regulated. It's very difficult to see a kind of Minsky moment of a sudden stop of liquidity causing a chain reaction, a domino effect of defaults and runs on banks and that type of thing happening in China, simply because the level of state control is so strong. So my guess would be that unless China is put under huge amounts of international stress, it will be able to maneuver itself over the next five, 10 years into a situation of lower debt. Thank you, James. I'd like to thank my guest, Gabriel Wildow, the FT's Shanghai Bureau Chief, James King, its Global China Editor, and the producer, Anna Deda. To read the full series, go to www.ft.com slash China Debt. Thank you. If you've enjoyed listening to this episode, you can subscribe to the Big Read podcast on all the usual channels. Plus, do take a look at our latest subscriber discount offer at ft.com slash offer 50. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.